As human beings, the way that we experience the world is entirely mediated through our five explicit senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. There may also be other forms of extrasensory perception that might be involved as well, but we primarily perceive by seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and or touching. And we take these senses and their sense impressions often for granted. We don't really think much about our senses until they're not working as well as they used to. And we don't just not think about them, we implicitly trust them. We are convinced that what's going on around us is what we are seeing, we are hearing the sounds around us, smelling the smells around us, and so on and so forth. We understand the concept of seeing is believing, and we really hold firm to that very much in the way that we approach the world. And it's a great thing to spend some time looking at our senses and marveling at them. The fact that we apprehend the world through them, that our brain is able to process them all, even though the brain is not directly uh, seeing, hearing, all those other things. It's all being mediated through the sense organs. And that we have been very much, very well put together uh, and fitted together, as David praised God in Psalm 139. But we also do well to consider our senses and where sometimes our senses may lead us astray at times as well. And that sometimes our senses have built-in limitations, and it's supposed to teach us something about ourselves. And today, let's consider our sense of smell. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 16 and 17, Paul asks, if the whole body were an ear, what part would exercise the sense of smell? You don't smell through your ear, right? Uh, God has so made the creation so that there are a lot of compounds that give off some kind of smell. We call them aroma, fragrance, odor, or what have you. They're called odorous molecules. And these odorous molecules that are out in the environment, they enter into our nasal cavity, and they bind to cilia, or small hairs of olfactory nerves that are in the very top of our sinus uh, cavities. And the interaction of the aroma compound and the cilia, those little hairs, generates an electrical signal that goes to the olfactory bulb, a part of our brain that begins to process that signal. And it immediately compares it to previously received signals. It'll then take that signal and continue to transmit it to the amygdala, the orbital frontal cortex, and hippocampus, which then work together to manifest the constructed smell but also the expected response to that smell. We have about 40 million olfactory neurons at work, which can detect at least 10,000 different smells that are converted and decoded by the brain. The very direct connection to the brain centers of emotion response is why smell can trigger memories and visual visceral reactions very quickly in a way even that our sight and our hearing and, and tasting and touching uh, just are not able to do. Our, our sense of smell may not be one of the more well-rounded senses compared to some of our others, but it does seem to be the most directly attached to a lot of memory and directly attached to a lot of very visceral reaction. You know that reaction when you, when you smell something good, you just kind of pull yourself into it and the immediate emotional response when you smell something nasty. And the very, you know, you can almost do a physical retching, a physical extraction from that situation. But also there's a, a compelling sense of memory, right? And, and you may have some smells that will trigger memories. You're not even necessarily expecting it to trigger a memory, but it's very unconscious maybe, but it's certainly there. Uh, maybe you are in a certain environment at a certain time and you've got a certain smell 
Uh, you can imagine uh, you're walking in a park at night and you smell the certain smell of the various trees and the plants around you, and it transports you to a previous time when you were in a similar location. You smell a particular fragrance and it reminds you of somebody in your life beforehand or a situation you were in. A lot of times certain flowers may remind you of funerals because of the fact that they're used often at funerals and that creates a strong sense, uh, a memory sense there. Many other examples could be thus provided. And smell and taste, actually, are also very closely associated. 80% of what we think is taste really comes from smell. And you can test this pretty easily by trying to close your nose and eat something. And it's going to be a very different experience than when you have smell working along with taste. And what's interesting about smell is that with sight, hearing, some of the other senses, we can talk about distortion. We can talk about uh, times where we may miss certain things that, we're, that we could see. We might miss certain things we could hear. Our brain's trying to process what we're hearing or seeing. But smell is uniquely personal because of the experiences and memories smells might trigger. And so the way that you respond to a given smell may not be the way anybody else responds to it because they don't have the, the basis of memory or experience with that smell like you do. There is a limitation on smell, but we consider that a gift, and that is the ability to habituate to a smell in which we no longer notice a scent that's pervasive in the environment if we've been around it long enough. Uh, now we leave the environment, come back in, we'll start smelling it again. But that has allowed us to endure. In an environment, there are certain smells that otherwise would occupy our attention or hinder us from being able to do whatever we're trying to do. But we all share the sensation of smell in common, and we generally can agree on certain things smelling like a certain way. Again, the difference is the memories that trigger, perhaps some of the emotions that those smells trigger uh, might be different. Um, and for some people, it might be a very powerful thing. For some other people, it may mean nothing at all. And so that's what's going on with our sense of smell. In Proverbs 7, verse 17, as part of the uh, flattering, adulterous woman's appeal to the senseless young man, she says, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. But in John chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus tells them to take away the stone. But Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the deceased, replied, Lord, by this time the body will have a bad smell because he has been buried four days. And this helps us understand the two things we really have to going on when it comes to smell. Uh, the use and memory of smell comes down to either attraction or decay. There's a lot of stuff that you see in the world regarding which you're indifferent. It's not something that immensely attracts you. It's not something that you find repellent. It's not something that you're concerned about at all. Same with hearing. There's all kinds of noises we may find pleasing, some noises we find grating, and a bunch of noises that are just neutral. Smell, however, can you think of a lot of smells that don't provoke any kind of reaction whatsoever, that you're completely indifferent to? And that's because of the nature of smell, the fact that it's this kind of coming off the basis of chemicals and what the purpose of smell really works. Because we're smelling volatile compounds in the air. And those volatile compounds that are in the air are in the air for a reason. They're in the air because of attraction, which is trying to please you to draw your attention in. Or it's evidence of decay, and we're recoiling from the presence of that decay. And so when we think positively about smell, think about smells that we enjoy, fragrances, right? 
We they ingen generally involves me something intended to be attractive. So what do you think are some of your favorite scents? Think about your favorite scents. What are the things that you love to smell? I bet a lot of them are centered on food of some kind. Maybe fruit. Maybe, you know, a nice cooked steak. Uh, something of that sort, right? And the reason why you have those pleasant smells, uh, the, the fruits are, are giving off that pleasant smell because the plants want the animals to be attracted to the fruit, to consume the fruit, so that the seeds in the fruit can be dispersed in other places. That is a big part of the plant's reproduction concept. Uh, we find the smell of foods cooked well attractive because the food is good to eat. We've associated the smelling of food that cook that smells a certain way as being pleasant to eat, and thus we eat it. Likewise, we <clears throat> will find the smell of certain oils attractive, and and many of those. Um, Fragrances are parts of cologne and perfume, which people wear in order to be found attractive or at least not to be found repellent, right? And some, those will come from fruit smells, but a lot of them will also come from flowery scents. Why, why do flowers smell good? Well, flowers are also trying to be attractive. They're trying to attract insects and birds and other things that will come to uh, get some pollen dusted on it to go and, and pollinate the plant with another plant. So again, they're not just putting out that smell for the fun of it. They're putting it out because they are trying to attract. And there is a significant part of our um, smelling concept that is designed unto attraction. And we also associate good smells with health and growth, right? Good smelling food means that we will eat it, be healthy and strong. Good smelling people will exhibit health and vitality at least that's the that's the conceit that we we involve we we imagine in things of that sort so those are the attractive smells but as you're well aware there's all kinds of smells that we find offensive and the reason that we find them offensive is that they do absolutely involve decay and death because a lot of the smell compounds released in the air come as a result of the work of bacteria everything from the decomposition of flesh to halitosis and body odor now, we think about unpleasant food, or excuse me, unpleasant smells, and there we go, leading it off there. We think of things like rotting food, right? Uh, a, a creature that's decomposing, uh, the stool that we void, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and anyone who has spent any amount of time in, with human beings in medical context can attest to uh, the way that medieval people kind of looked at people as constantly exuding forth the scent of decay, vainly attempting to cover up the smell of decay uh, with all kinds of pleasing fragrances because uh, there's an, an, all kinds of ways the human body can smell. There's all kinds of things coming out of the human body that can exude all kinds of smells, and they are odors, and they are very unpleasant. And because smell is so viscerally remembered in memory, we have very strong attractions uh, to the fragrant aromas or repulsive reactions to the putrid odors. We can imagine a lot of memories are smell neutral, right? Where we remember things, we're not thinking about things that smelled good or bad. But think about it for a second. Do you have any good memories that involve bad smells? Likewise, do you have any memories that are, you know, wonderful, you know, uh, that that uh, had horrible things happen to you, but you had good smells going on? Like you were maybe all 
you know, dressed up for a date and smelled really good, but the person rejected you. Is that going to be a smell remembrance? Uh, probably not, where you normally we associate attractive smells with good memories and repulsive smells with bad memories. If there was a repulsive smell around, it's probably going to make it a bad memory. And it's going to be hard to remember uh, good smells in terms of bad memory. And there's all of these things are working together for that kind of reason. And we can understand why smell would be so strongly associated with attraction and repulsion and to be strongly remembered. Because that which is stinky involves rottenness. And what happens if you consume food that is rotten? It's going to hurt you. So there's a, a, there's a built-in reaction there uh, to keep you from consuming things that would cause you great pain and distress. And that which is pleasant is leading you toward food that is healthy and good or toward health and strength. And so we can see there attraction and repulsion at work with smell. And what's interesting about smell is that we normally don't associate smell much with religious activity, right? Uh, you think about coming together in assembly as Christians. Uh, there are things that we do visually in terms of uh, seeing one another. Uh, there might be some kind of visual involvement in the sermon or something of that nature, or in reading something or something of the sort. There's a lot of hearing going on, right? When it comes to um, the lesson, the the singing, praying, so on and so forth. There is likely a taste element with the observance of the Lord's Supper. And there's a tactile involvement where you are in, in always sense perception in your environment, the, the various temperature and other things, but also, of course, the tactile expression of, of hugging brethren and things of that nature. Now, that's not to say there's no smell memory, but the smell memory will probably be the smell of whatever that smell of the assembly is. Maybe it's the, you can, and, and again, something that will probably be very deeply ingrained in your memory. Maybe some kind of must of a building that's had a carpet sitting in there for years. Maybe a vague hint of some kind of bleach or cleaning solution, or maybe a couple of the, you know, air fragrances used to make the bathrooms not smell so bad. All of that kind of wafting together, and that's the kind of the smell memory that you have uh, when you're among the people of God. But what's interesting is, and, and something that you can't exactly replicate in Scripture, right? Because it's not like there was scratch and sniff in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. But there can be a smell guide to various aspects of what's going on uh, between God and man, especially as it relates to the places where the people of God, especially the Old Covenant, would go to, to the tabernacle and to the temple. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to Yahweh. He then took some of every kind of clean animal and clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, even though the inclination of their minds is evil from childhood on. I will never again destroy everything that lives as I have just done. While the earth continues to exist, planting time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. This is the first time in the scripture we meet the phrase that will be frequently there in the Hebrew Bible, Rea Hanachoya which is translated as a soothing or a pleasing aroma. And the Genesis author invites us to consider Yahweh having his anger against humankind placated by smelling that smooth, soothing aroma of the sacrificed animals. The, that, that was a soothing aroma in him that placated him, and he committed to not destroying everything ever again. And 
we have spoken before about the logic behind the sacrifice of plants and animals, dedicating to Yahweh the first and best of what he has given, as well as an atonement theory of the death of the animal that is a cover or to atone for the sins of the offerer. We can see this exemplified in Malachi chapter 1 and Leviticus chapter 17. But there's an additional domain of the logic of sacrifice that we see here in Genesis and will be carried forth throughout uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and the rest of the Old Covenant. Uh, and it's not even just Israel in the Old Covenant, by the way. This is something going on in among every other uh, ancient people, uh, all the way into the days of Jesus going on in the Roman Empire, which was the idea of placating God by means of the soothing aromas of the various sacrifices being offered. And when you look in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you have just over and over and over again this idea of the soothing aroma. In Exodus 29, the ram offered as a burnt offering to dedicate Aaron and his sons as priest is a soothing aroma. Uh, later on, the second lamb offered as part of the daily sacrifice every day as a burnt offering, a soothing aroma. Leviticus 2, a grain offering of wheat, flour, olive oil, and frankincense is a soothing aroma. The peace offering in Leviticus 3 between a person and Yahweh. Not a whole burnt offering. Instead, the fat around the organs of the animal, the kidneys, and part of the liver would be burnt on the altar, and that would be considered a soothing aroma. In fact, in Leviticus 3.16, all fat belongs to Yahweh and is considered a soothing aroma when it is sacrificed. In Leviticus 23.9-14, when the Feast of first fruits came around, the lamb was to be offered as a burnt offering with grain and oil. It was a soothing aroma before Yahweh. And in Numbers 15, Israel is instructed about the protocol of making an offering. There's a lamb for burnt offering, the grain offering of wheat and oil, and some wine. And that whole offering reckoned as a soothing aroma. So right there, you've got this whole imagination of smells of animal um, flesh being burned. But not even just animal flesh. You also have uh, the smell of the oil and flour and frankincense as it's being burned. The smell of the wine as it's being burned. I know it sounds weird having a liquid and having that being part of what is burned, but there is a, the ability to, to have all of that happen, and it's going to have certain aromas that are being uh, wafted up there, and that smell is a soothing aroma before Yahweh. In Exodus 30, 34-38, Yahweh says to Moses, Take spices, gum resin, anika, galbanum, and pure frankincense of equal amounts, and make it into an incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer. It is to be finely ground and pure and sacred. You are to beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the Ark of the Testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It is to be most holy to you. And the incense that you are to make, you must not make for yourselves using the same recipe. It is to be most holy to you, belonging to Yahweh. Whoever makes anything like it to use as a perfume will be cut off from his people. And this way, Yahweh makes provision for there to be an anointing oil and incense for Israel. And the anointing incense for Israel is not just for Israelis to use at any moment. It is to be used specifically in this dedication to and the service of God. These ingredients, particularly frankincense, were a common feature of oils and incense in the ancient world, and they were desired for use in all temples. This is what made Arabia Felix, Arabia Felix, Arabia the happy. The frankincense only grew well in parts of modern-day Yemen, maybe parts of Oman, southwestern Saudi Arabia. That's where those plants grew, and they harvested the frankincense, and it sold for obscene amounts of money throughout the ancient world, uh, even into the days of the Greeks and Romans, where it was getting paid for a lot, a lot, a lot. And that's why the wise men, when they come to Jesus, they bring gold, they bring frankincense, they bring myrrh. These are the princely, kingly gifts of great value. In Exodus 30, 
An altar of incense is part of the furniture of the tabernacle and the temple, and incense was to be burned on it in the morning and in the evening at sacrifice time. Incense would also be burned so the fragrance would come before Yahweh in the most holy place when the high priest would enter annually, which is said in Leviticus 16. It's also what you can imagine when Zechariah walks in in Luke 1 and verse 9. It is appropriate to imagine that Zechariah, as he's coming in, is going to have some kind of incense uh, in his hand so that the smoke of the incense will surround him as he enters in to do the ministrations in the most holy place before God. And so the smell of incense is always supposed to be in front of God as a pleasing fragrance in Deuteronomy 33 in verse 10. And so let's imagine here as a smell guide to going into these holy places. I mean, this is the temple. This is the place where Yahweh has made his name to dwell. His presence dwells there uh, until at least 586. Uh, this is the heart and locus of Israelite devotion and worship. And you walk in, and for this purpose, we are a Levitical or priestly male. Therefore, we have access to the holy place, because that's where you're definitely going to smell things. We can imagine the smell of burning flesh and oil and frankincense, wheat flour, and some wine, which is understood as a soothing aroma before Yahweh. And it's not going to be unnecessarily unpleasant, excuse me. It's going to be, it's, it might actually be very pleasant. But the process by which the sacrifice would be made would not smell nearly as pleasant. Because animals in general, farm animals in particular, generally don't smell great. And when you slaughter them, the smell doesn't get better. We can imagine the poured out blood passing down channels cut for that purpose. But there's still going to be a residue. And of course, there's going to be the flies and other things that are attracted to it. Not every animal is dedicated as a burnt offering. And a burnt offering, you know, just cook the whole thing. The whole thing gets burned up. Uh, one of the things that happens when you burn it all up is that you have the smell of the char and the, and the burning, and that generally kind of overwhelms anything else that might come out of it. When animal offerings require disembowelment, like the peace offerings do, you're going to have all kinds of smells come out of that animal, and no good smell comes out of the disemboweling process. And you're not going to be able to escape the stench of death, therefore, in the offerings, the smell of rotting, the smell of death, the smell of, of excrement. That's just going to be part and parcel of what these smells are. And that, at least in parts, why incense being burned, right? It's an attempt to provide something positively fragrant to try to cover some of that stench. And that's how we can imagine this environment full of attractive and repellent smells at the same time. The stench of death and the fragrance of cooking food and sweet-smelling incense. And this is how the Hebrews author can say in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, that this whole system is a continual reminder of sin. You can imagine going in this environment, this environment you're being confronted with the ugliness of sin and all that it's caused. Because that smell of death, that smell of that stench of rotting and death smell, because so many things are being killed, is the result of sin, is because of sin around there. And yet there is the attempt to cover that with all these fragrances. And the fragrances are allows to imagine a smooth, you know, a, a, a sweet smelling, a fragrant aroma before God, right? But yet it's covering, and probably barely covering, if even covering, the stench of death. That is the constant, you know, sacrifices being offered, the constant reminder of sin, and the fact that the ugliness of the sin, you just there's only so much you can cover with the perfumed fragrance of righteous acts, righteous deeds, right? And this is a system that was perpetuated for about 1,400 years. Sure, there's a couple interruptions there, but pretty much 1,400 years from when the 
the tabernacle is built in the wilderness, or at least when they enter the promised land around 1410, um, until 586, but then picked up again 533 until the year 70 of our own era. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the latter, an odor from death to death, but to the former, a fragrance from life to life. It was adequate for these things, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. And the Hebrews author persuasively argued how Jesus, when he offered himself, done once for all sin, was able to truly and fully forgive sin without needing that continual reminder. That's what he's arguing in Hebrews 9, 11 through chapter 10 and verse 18, which demonstrates why we do no longer need to have sin offerings. And this is one of those things that as Christians today we take for granted. We take for granted the, the, the end of the sacrificial system. In fact, most people find it barbaric, the idea that you had all these places sacrificing all these animals all the time. But when Paul says this, it's a revolutionary idea. In fact, it's a destabilizing idea. Because even all the pagans continually offered sacrifices. Even the guys who sack that there are no real gods, you'll still find them sacrificing. If nothing else to keep up appearances. Uh, sacrifices are a part of everything because they're trying to keep the gods from getting angry at them. Now, in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 16, Paul is showing that we're not just throwing all of that out. The whole sacrificial system with everything going on is not just being dispensed with, right? He uses the idea of the sweet aroma there. We are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, an odor from death, a former fragrance from life to life. That Greek term is used also in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, in the verses above about being a, a sweet, you know, a, a, a soothing aroma before Yahweh. Yeah, this is not about anything believers have or give. It's of Christ based on his offering and life that you can now, quote-unquote, smell on Paul and his associates among unbelievers and unbelievers. And this is where, when Paul says, in Romans 12, verse 1, that we are to present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice, it's not some kind of just bizarre little statement or just some kind of flowery narrative there. There's a core idea being there. It's not that the sacrificial system is entirely done away with. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And because Jesus has offered himself up for us all, we now can offer ourselves up to be an offering to God. We are that offering. And that smell of Paul and his associates is a pleasing aroma to God and the fellow believers. It is a smell of death for unbelievers because it warns of the condemnation that is going to come. And that is why when the gospel is preached, we who go out and preach the gospel, there are some who will find it immensely attractive. They will find that sweet smell of the gospel message attractive and, be, and come to it. But for others, there is the stench of condemnation because it's a, on their own lives, it's showing them the things that they have done wrong and the decay and death in their lives. And therefore, they find it completely repellent. And that is true of Paul's and associates in 2 Corinthians. It's true of any of us who bring the knowledge of Jesus anywhere. And that's a powerful spiritualization. When we say spiritualization, it doesn't make it less real. It just is a reminder that, okay, all these sacrifices in terms of offering animals have been fulfilled, but we are now to be that sacrifice, that soothing aroma before God in our uh, faithful embodiment of service to him and, indeed, 
that the proclamation of the gospel is reckoned as a sweet smell for those being saved, but a, the stench of death for those being condemned. Revelation 5 and verse 8, John says that when the Lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders threw themselves to the ground before the Lamb. Each one of them had a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So when John is granted this revelation, the first thing he sees is the place in heaven in which God dwells, the heavenly temple, so to speak, in Revelation 4 and 5, consistent with the imagery in Ezekiel, Isaiah, and other, other passages. And John's going to see incense in this temple here and in Revelation chapter 8. And unlike most of the images in the vision of Revelation, John interprets the incense for us. He says the incense bowls, the incense is the prayers of the saints, prayers of God's holy ones. And as the tabernacle or temple be suffused with that smoke of the incense, which was a sweet fragrance to please God, so the temple, quote-unquote, of the presence of God is suffused with the petitions of Christians and serves a similar purpose. And the next time we want to wonder or question if our prayer does anything or means anything, or wonder why we're praying, we should remember that imagery, that we should imagine the heavenly places are suffused with the pleasing smoke the incense of the prayers that we are offering before God. So our sense of smell may not be the strongest, but it's one of the most visceral. Smells will attract or repel. That we have the stench of death among us because of sin and corruption, but in Christ we can become a fragrant aroma. That is why we do well to live as sacrificing, a soothing aroma before God, to obtain in Jesus the resurrection of life, continually bringing forth before God the incense of our constant prayers. So glad that you've joined us. I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We are Christians trying to uh, make disciples here in Los Angeles. We'd love to be of encouragement to you. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts by anything we've mentioned in terms of smell, love to hear them in the comments. Please let us know. Continue our conversation. You please subscribe to us where you found us. And if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.